According to St. Mark, chapter 10, verses 2 and following, some Pharisees came, and to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote that commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then in the house... The disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Let the little children come to me. And truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's the gospel of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> it's been pretty difficult since the pandemic to do something that I enjoy a lot. Uh, just can't really travel much, right? It's hard to get where you're going. You don't know whether or not you're going to have to take a test to get back. And the whole thing is really confusing, which is difficult because I love to travel. I like the new sights, the new sounds. I find the, the, the thought of going someplace new to be an exciting one. It's not for everybody, but it is for me. Oh, and, and, and traveling out of the country, uh, th I mean, that's even better. You step past TSA at the airport, or you sit down on the train, you start up the car, and all of a sudden you're, you're on an adventure. New places, new sights, new foods, new people, new smells. I mean, the whole thing I find really exciting. But, I mean, if we're honest, it's, it's not all Instagram-worthy, is it? 
I mean, some things about travel can be pretty disappointing. Like, when I was a kid, and I, I would spend summers down in Mexico at my grandparents, the children's home, it was great. I loved it. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big deal um, to, to be a little kid and travel to another country. I mean, it's just so exotic. Everybody speaks a different language from you. And that's, that's all kind of really thrilling, except when you're stuck by yourself and you can't make the lady selling homemade clay pipes at the market understand that, you know, you really don't actually need a pipe. You're, in fact, you're looking for a luchador mask. Except you didn't know that they were called luchadors, you just knew them as those masks that the goofy-looking professional wrestlers wore. So apparently it was expecting too much to think that she might be able to communicate with a nine-year-old in a language not her own. And so I, I never did get the mask, but if you're in the market for a clay pipe, I think I can hook you up. I mean, not knowing the language, I mean, it can really mess with you when you leave your own country. But, you know, it's interesting. Of all the places I've been, one of the places that I have felt the most alien in, Canada. Seriously, I mean, uh, we spent uh, about 10 days there a few years back in Montreal, and, 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 you know, I mean, those dang French Canadians insist on speaking, get this, French. I didn't practice my French because, I mean, it's Canada for crying out loud. I mean, aren't they almost, like, American? Well, it turns out they're pretty serious about this whole parlez-vous français thing up there in the Great White North. I mean, all the signs are in French. You go to the IGA to pick up some milk and bread and get this. The cashiers, they speak French to you. I mean, even the little kids running around on the playground, all speaking French. I, maybe it's just me, but the whole thing I find a little off-putting. I mean, why couldn't they speak Spanish or Italian or, here's a thought, English? Nah, I, I'm kidding, obviously. I loved Montreal. It was great. French language and all. But I, I, I felt there like I have in other countries this, this sort of acute realization that this place wasn't set up with me in mind. They didn't construct their culture to satisfy me. Now, believe me when I say the whole thing came as quite a shock to me, too. I mean, here in the U.S., things are pretty much designed with people like me in mind. Right? White, straight, middle class, cisgendered men. I know it. I mean, seriously, I, I, I do. And I realize now that the privileged hand I was dealt before I ever so much as took my first gulp of air, I didn't do anything to earn the deference our culture pays to people like me. So, I mean, I'm not going to try to feel extra guilty to compensate for it. I mean, it is what it is. On the other hand, though, I'm 
also not going to act like my privilege doesn't exist. I must be constantly aware of the fact that other people's experiences of the world are really different from mine. And that my experience shouldn't be held up as the standard against which other people's lives are measured. In fact, I have to be willing to let the experiences of those I've too often casually assumed existed on the margins, let them move to the center to, 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 to completely rethink what the margins might look like if people like me were the ones who existed out there. Imagining that. As a white parent, for example, I, I don't have to have the, the conversation with my sons about how not to provoke the police. I don't have to worry about whether somebody's following me around Target to make sure I don't swipe a toaster or something. I'm not constantly beset by the nagging suspicion that people think I got my job because I'm qualified for it, not just because of that, but somehow because of my race. That's the reason. I mean, as a, as a semi-scary-looking male, I generally don't have to wonder if I'm being targeted as a victim of sexual assault when I walk through a poorly lit parking garage at night. As a straight person, I don't have to worry about holding my beloved's hand in public or if I, because I do, that somehow I'll be thrown out on the street for it. As a middle-class American, I generally don't have to decide between paying the mortgage or buying the kids some food. Heck, the fact that I have a mortgage sets me apart already as one of the lucky ones. Moreover, I, I don't have to worry whether a building is accessible to someone with my physical abilities. I don't have to spend time considering whether simple encounters will raise the question of whether or not I have the proper documentation to live and work here. I don't live in fear that my children will be taken from me and thrown into cages. I, I, I never have to worry that the cashier in the grocery store is going to speak to me in some language other than English. You see, the thing about privilege isn't just that I can generally avoid unpleasant social situations based on things over which I have no control but that I don't even have to worry about being in unpleasant social situations just because I'm white, straight, middle-class, cisgender, or male. I, I don't have to factor in be, all of these things because the world I live in was built for people like me. But I always have to bear in mind that not everybody has that kind of luxury. To take for granted that the world is a friendly place. I mean, plenty of people have to start each day with a plan just to make it all the way safely to bedtime. Now, I say that I, ha I need to bear in mind that not everybody can take so much for granted on purpose here because the Pharisees who approached Jesus in our text for today apparently forgot that important piece of social empathy. 
See, the Pharisees in Jesus' immediate world weren't entirely at the top of the social heap, but they were a pretty good ways up. And the shape of their encounter with Jesus underlines the peril of thinking that any group of people exist always at the center of the universe. So the Pharisees, they approach Jesus with a question. And it seems like a fairly simple and straightforward one, right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They say, I mean, it's a yes or no question. It's, you don't need a politician's answer. No weasel word. Just tell us. Do you believe it? Yes or no? But if you've spent much time roaming around the Gospels, you know that whenever the religious authorities come to Jesus asking questions, it's not because they're genuinely interested in having a theological discussion with him. Generally speaking, when Jesus is asked a question by the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees or the chief priests, it's a setup. They're trying to trap him with their clever little word games. I mean, Mark even tells us that they're testing him. The fact is, in this case, they're already convinced it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife even before they hear his answer. Because that particular doctrinal squabble had been settled for a long time. What was still a matter of debate, however, was under what circumstances it was lawful for a man to seek a divorce. Now, can you sort of see the privilege poking through here? The Pharisees take for granted that a man should be able to obtain a divorce because why wouldn't he be able to? He's a man, after all. Now, a woman, on the other hand, I mean, that's a different story. But do you see the assumptions at work in the question that Jesus gets asked? Men should be able to divorce their wives, but under what circumstances is it lawful? Now, this is an argument about how much men should have to be inconvenienced by women they no longer want in their lives. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, in perfect Jesus fashion, he answers a question with another question. He says, well, what does, uh, what does Moses command? Now, mistakenly thinking that they're on pretty firm ground here, the Pharisees say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But as Matt Skinner has pointed out, the Pharisees neglect to mention a key piece of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which requires a husband to give the certificate of divorce to his ex-wife. I mean, such a document might provide a divorced woman with a defense against rumor and slander. See, for a majority of women in that culture, survival depended upon being a member of a household. A woman, perhaps with children, but without a husband and without a means of explaining why she was unmarried, could be exposed to great risk. The law's provision about the certificate seeks to mitigate that risk, but apparently the Pharisees find that detail not quite worth noting. In other words, because marriage was largely an economic relationship between a father and a husband, women in the ancient Near Eastern world experienced amazingly 
vulnerable situations as a result of divorce. And the law was given to protect the most vulnerable among God's people, not to take advantage of them for the sake of anyone else's convenience. See, the Pharisees in our gospel for this morning take for granted a world built to look after their needs, that is, the needs of powerful men, without ever considering the needs of those who are most powerless to look after their own needs. Often this text is taken as, uh, as Jesus' directions about or, or reprimands for individuals who divorce. But see, I'd like to suggest that Jesus isn't offering here necessarily a legal interpretation about what individuals can be held responsible for when it comes to marriage and divorce. I think he's going deeper than that to argue that God set down the law as a way of establishing a community whose primary purpose is to protect those who are too often defenseless to stand against the way the world is ordered, which is to say, the way God sees it, this new reign Jesus is busy announcing is decidedly not set up to prefer the conveniences of the powerful. In other words, Jesus offers a vision of God's reign that turns the sort of taken for grantedness of those who are privileged on its head and stands beside those who are too easily trampled by the folks at the top of the food chain. Now, this commitment to a community that looks first after the needs of its most vulnerable, I believe, is why Mark follows this contentious exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees with a, a perfectly understandable illustration of just exactly what Jesus is getting at. As Jesus is making his point about the need to protect the powerless in God's new reign, people start sort of out of nowhere, it seems, bringing their children for Jesus to bless. And, of course, right on cue, the disciples show that they aren't quite tracking Jesus' meaning. They tell the people that, you know, they need to take their annoying kids and just bug off. I mean, can't these people see that Jesus is in the middle of an important conversation? And, I mean, he really can't be inconvenienced by a bunch of whiny little ankle biters. Hit the road. Mark says, But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Do you see, in the world that God envisions what we should be protecting are not the entitlements of those who always seem to get box seats to the game of life so that they can continue to take for granted their lives of convenience, but that we should be protecting the very lives of those who might otherwise be trampled by the powerful who too often seem interested only in fortifying their own privilege. I mean, the easy thing, the, 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 the natural thing is to secure the advantages of a world built with people like me in mind. But if we're concerned about participating in the world announced by the unfolding reign of God, then the question ought, that we ought to be asking is, never 
is it lawful for me to disregard people who don't have the same advantages of me advantages as me which is to say whose problems do we get to ignore that's not the question we should be asking as followers of Jesus the questions we have to ask are to what extent am I helping to build a community that welcomes the vulnerable provides healing to the brokenhearted I mean how do I help to transform a world built for people like me into a place that thinks first of the outcast and the powerless, that's concerned with remembering those who are forgotten. How, how do I stand with Jesus against a world that too often tramples the best interests of women and the needs of children, that, 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 that regularly ignores the plight of the hungry, the houseless, the addicted, the stranger, and the outcast? I mean, these, that's, these are the questions that we should be asking ourselves. I mean, after all, the world I inhabit wasn't created by God just to bless people like me. It was created to carve out space so that everyone whom God loves can live and flourish with dignity. And if I want to be like God, my vocation, the challenge presented to me is to learn to participate in this new upside-down world. Not to try to remake it in my own image. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.